You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Portuguese wines are experiencing a renaissance. Why did they get lost in the mix to begin with? Lewis from GK Selections is here to share his mission to put Portugal front and center in the wine world again. Hey, super excited to have Portugal. Yeah, we're going to talk about Portugal today. I'm with Lewis from GK Selection. He joins me. His mission is to bring in the best wines of Portugal to New York City. Super happy to have him here. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis, for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, yeah. uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, cool. So tell us how you uh, got into this business. I mean, what's a little bit of your past? Uh, give us the short. Yeah, so the uh, long of the short of it is, or the short of the long of it is. Uh, I moved to New York City in 2016 with my uh, then fiance, now wife. She was going to culinary school to work in fine dining, and I figured I might as well learn something useful. I just sort of burned out of academia and decided I didn't want to go down that road. Uh, and so I just, you know, applied for Craigslist jobs, and you know, uh, I eventually, uh, about you know, six, seven months later, landed at Ledoux's Wines oh, cool. in the West Village. Uh, you know, I walked into an interview with Jean-Luc Ledoux and the current manager of uh, J.T. Robertson. I had no idea who either of them were. You know, it was an anonymous job posting, and somehow they, you know, I convinced them to give me a job. And yeah, I mean, that was an incredible experience. Um, you know, I think my time there definitely informed the way that I'm approaching you know curating this portfolio and, and selling it in a big way simply because you know my, my background isn't necessarily Portuguese wine it's fine wine mm -hmm. um, and I you know Ledoux is a burgundy store right uh, you know we sell burgundy we sell Brollo Bordeaux you know you fight for allocations the best you, of the best yeah John yeah. is iconic uh, yeah absolutely yeah. Um, and uh, you know it was a business where we did the vast majority of our revenue through the back office my job was to read about wine and write about wine all day and you know try and sell as many email offers as I could and you know one of the big trends over the last you know five years in the wine business is you know allocations are getting smaller and your margins on your allocations are getting smaller because mm -hmm. there's so much more competition for them and yields are yeah. going down in Burgundy and Champagne and places like this right as the world market opens up there's a shortage of these wines that were before uh, for people who are listening who don't quite understand what we're talking about there are wines that wine shops and restaurants would be offered they'd get back in the day you'd get like two cases you'd get three cases now as the wine world opens up and that funnel gets wider all of a sudden those same stores and restaurants are offered three bottles yeah or six bottles yeah and you know everyone and everyone is seeing the the prices in burgundy you know fly through the roof but you know retailers are not necessarily making more money you know our our costs are rising often even faster than uh than your costs are simply because there's so much competition and price pressure for the wines mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we were constantly having to look for, for more things to sell other than, you know, what we would typically have sold. And uh, I sort of found a little bit of a niche in high-end Portuguese wine. Hmm. Um, you know, I, and it wasn't just high-end Portuguese wine, but Portuguese wines from regions that were a little bit less familiar to the U.S. market. Places like Bairada, places like Colarche, both right. regions that are along the coast, and both regions where their wines are much more similar 
uh, phenotypically to what you might get out of Burgundy or uh, you know Barolo in particular. Red fruited, really pretty, high right. acidity, incredibly transparent of uh, of place. The wine world <coughs> and the academic world are actually remarkably similar. You know, it's memorizing lots of esoteric information and talking about it passionately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely felt skill wise prepared to to pick things up relatively quickly. Um, you know, I'd always enjoyed wine. I'd actually, you know, I'd, I'd grown up semi in the beer business. My, my dad had owned a brewery. Uh, Very nice. And so I was, you know, familiar with some tangential elements of the industry. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just was reading and writing about wine for 8, 10, 12 hours a day for you know five six days a week for four or five years uh, so what's the fun part of that job like give me some um, moments you're like this is why i'm sticking around because how long were you there for i was there for i think four and a half years long something time. like that four or five long time. yeah i mean ledoux was an amazing place to work um you know jt robertson the the current manager i think is one of the the great wine professionals in new york city not just because he's extremely knowledgeable you know especially for burgundy and, and california he's one of the most knowledgeable people i've ever met uh, but he's just an incredible like human being and a great manager. He cared a lot about us. You know, he cared. He made sure that we were w- very well compensated relative to you know other wine store jobs. Sure. Great. He always made sure we had health care. Uh, you know, when we ever had issues, you know, taking a day off or whatever, it wasn't a big deal. You know, uh, I I think that that was the case when Jean-Luc was really in his heyday. Right. Um, you know, I think by the time I I started working there in, you know, very early 2017, and he passed end of 2017. Tragically. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that what Ledoux had initially been, you know, it was one of the first wine stores really in the country that had someone that had the title of sommelier running it. Right. You know, it was one of the first wine stores, I think, that didn't only just sell wine, they sort of did this fine wine consulting thing that now everyone and you know yeah. everyone it's, is doing it's a fantastic example of the expression your network is your net worth yeah because John Luke was connected everybody from his roots in the restaurant business at Danielle so I mean he was really a celebrity yeah and all, yeah. Of, all the store's owners were yeah. you know his old buddies from Danielle and you know we it was a it was a business that was very much you know initially designed to sort of be his clubhouse right. and you know just sell great wine and have fun uh, and we people definitely came in even after he passed with like a lot of reverence for that legacy uh, and I, you know when I first started uh, Yannick Benjamin was still working there uh, and you know I, I already I already spoke about JT and so you know I had I had so much great mentorship while I was there mm-hmm. uh, and you know often the people who were you know managing our account with distributors were like you know the people who ran the company or sure. uh, you know were the portfolio managers and so they were so knowledgeable uh, and so I mean it was a great place just to be a, a sponge yeah well you had to bring your A game if you're going to walk in that store and talk to John Luke for sure so let's um, let's uh, to go to Portugal for a bit why does yeah. Portugal get lost in the mix so here's the the uh, i would say the prevailing feeling of of portuguese wines changing now mm-hmm. but there's inexpensive cheap vino verde people think it's yeah. a grape they think it's just this light sparkling white wine and it should cost six bucks a liter yeah uh and then you have port and yeah. then you have super highing and or high alcohol like revved up reds yeah. um and that was that's the kind of the attitude but w- why do you think they got lost 
um, in the mix of like I mean they've been making wine before Christ was born that was a while ago yeah no absolutely (laughs) I mean I think that it's obviously complicated and there's a a big multitude of reasons Mm -hmm. Um, you know I think one thing to really understand about the Portuguese wine industry is that it's very bifurcated Mm -hmm. Um, you have you know Vino Verde and the Douro which were really two of the first commercial wine growing regions in the world right Um, you know people obviously know the Douro but Vino Verde was very much so as well you know they were selling you know, commercial. There were there were vineyards that were planted for commercial purposes going back to the early 19th century, right. and which is not the case really in most of even Western Europe. Uh, you know, obviously places like Burgundy were making wine to sell, but not at this like global commercial enterprise. You know, the port wine was not really being consumed in Portugal. It was it all yeah, being no, it was always in yeah. like London in the big cities and yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you have from a very early stage wine that's being produced for a a global palette, not just a Mm -hmm. sort of local tradition. Um, And you have other regions like the Dow, which has gotten certainly a bit more notoriety over the last couple Mm -hmm. decades. Uh, And then places like, you know, Collage and Bayrata and uh, various sub-regions of Alentejo that you know, had some commercial moments, but were by and large, you know, if you go to a lot, most of these places, they're still pretty polycultural. Right. You know, it's a lot of people growing grapes in their backyard and, you know, some people buying plots here and there. Sure. So it was like, I, I think probably when they uh, joined the EU, mm-hmm. it was money poured in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that certainly changed. 1989, exactly. 1990, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that certainly changed Alentejo right. uh, and, you know, the more flat-lying parts of Alentejo. The Alentejo is really the one place in Portugal and Lisboa as well where you did see a, a decent amount of French and other international grapes planted. Uh, and you did see a sort of moment where you had a lot of Spanish money, a lot of French money coming in and say, hey, we're going to make wines like, you know, Robert Parker's going to love them. Yeah. Uh, you know, That's the death knell. Big and rich <laughs> yeah. and there's going to be a lot of oak. Right. And you have that sort of second wave of Portuguese wine being made not for uh, a sort of local tradition or to show a sense of place, but again for this, this global palette. Um, and pretty much if you think of what wines the American consumer is familiar with, like you were saying, it's mm-hmm. Vino Verde, big rich wines from Alentejo, and port, increasingly dry wines from the Douro as well, but because the dry wines and grapes are grown, the, it's, the whole industry is still so dominated by the port industry. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, those wines, from like a, a value perspective, it's a very different conversation because the grapes have to be sold for minimum prices because of regulations under the port industry. Sure. Uh, and the Douro is also an incredibly expensive place to farm. Uh, and yeah, high elevation, really ridiculously hard to farm, particularly on the coast. Actually, inland as well, because we're yeah. going to talk about geography in a second. But yeah. um, I'll tell you, I uh, I follow you on Instagram. You have mm-hmm. great videos. What I love about them, they're incredibly concise. They're yeah. not overwrought. They're, mm-hmm. you, you really hit the points that people uh, who don't know anything about wine will totally appreciate. Uh, the soils, where they're located, and why these wines are interesting. Yeah. Um, I think uh, when I was watching that, 
that. I like you. Uh, I'm, it's my my crypto call. I think Portu Portuguese wines are going to uh, really kind of take off for a bunch of things we're going to talk about and when we taste. Yeah. Um, and I have to you, know, you have to give a shout out. I mean, you know, uh, Luis Sebras. Uh, he's an amazing winemaker. Yeah. Uh, that really helped. I think uh, put the eyes on on Portugal and the wines are still um, affordable. You know, they sell at twenty nine dollars in a retail store. Uh, Natalie Jessa from Gota that T Edward has is uh, yeah. she's done an amazing job of bringing in Bergamont and uh, some uh, Azahar and these Atlantic wines that are beautiful. Mm. And I I like to see uh, the whole idea be just kind of you know shattered of cheap shitty wine coming out of Portugal because uh, now we can discuss um, why these wines um, are so brilliant. And let's start with tasting one of the wines. But yeah. I'd like to uh, throw something out at you, which I really thought was uh, I've I've known it. I've been there, but you, like I said earlier, you put it so succinctly. You you said uh, Portugal is like California. Yeah, you have the coastal range, the coastal uh, vineyards. Mm-hmm. So you get saline because you're close to the Atlantic, and then as you move inland, you get rugged, mountainous elevation. You get diversity in soils. Um, so um, explain that a little bit. Uh, and I actually put a really cool little map up for my vacation in Portugal for us to stare at. But like just how uh, amazing and diverse. As we talk about this first wine that you poured in my glass, this white wine. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you have here? So this is a wine from. Uh, it's a it's a brand new producer in Collarche, which is a region just northwest of Lisbon. And Collarche is very, very special for, for two reasons. Uh, Collarche DOC is, is the only DOC in Europe, and somebody might fact check me on this, but I'm, I'm fairly certain it's the only DOC in Europe where the vines have to be own rooted to meet the right. DOC. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are uh, sand beach vineyards. The music of New York yeah, in the background. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. We love it. Yeah. Uh, there are, are, are vineyards that are, you know, a lot of winemakers are the world talk about sand really what they mean is sort of like a really dry fine sort of silty dirt the the sand in collage is like you go to florida and you're on the beach it's beach yeah it's it's two meters of like sand sand followed like and then calcareous clay underneath uh and it was a very important region uh around you know the height of the phylloxera crisis because it was one of the last places in europe they could make really sort of traditional fine table wines uh but the other reason is that it's a very very cold microclimate uh it's only about maybe 45 minutes to an hour from Lisbon uh, but the Sintra Mountains separate Collage from Lisbon and trap a ton of cold humid yeah. air and so it's anywhere from you know 5 to 10 degrees centigrade cooler on any given day right. it's, uh, I have to tell you I, I, we, we spoke about this before but uh, I had a gentleman um, we just talked about Collares mm-hmm. uh, Marcos uh, who, who finds a lot of our Portuguese wine he's Portuguese an amazing surfer as well of course yeah. surfing is huge in the, yeah. the Collares area and he turned me on he cracked some bottles from the 60s mm-hmm. that just blew me away yeah um, just how fresh they were still and I think to your point the sand the original uh, rootstock no phylloxera so there's an intensity to these wines and the freshness from the yeah I mean and to, to go back to you know a little bit of my background and how I really got into Portuguese mm-hmm. wine you know I discovered Collarche and I, I started tasting bottles that went back to the 1930s you know nearly a hundred year old wine that's fucking crazy but, and why is it you can't find it you can right it's Im- just, it's impossible well so collage right? the doc yeah. region is unbelievably small it's right. there's some of the rarest wines in the world um you know there's something like 10 or 12 hectares of collage doc vineyards planted both red and white right uh, 
total. Um, but at the same time, you know, I would have to fight for my burgundy allocations. You know, I could buy as much of this 80-year-old collage as I wanted to when I was working at Ledoux. Yeah. Nobody else really cared. And the wines were unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and I sold a lot of them, and it was great. And I started getting really excited about the wines. And when I started this company, I was like, I need to find Kolarsh, you know, I want this to be part of what I'm doing. Uh, and and this is what we have in the glass? Yeah, so oh, nice. this okay. is not Kolarsh DOC, though. Okay. This is technically Lisboa VR, so the wines are planted just inland okay. on the, the limestone and clay soils. So one thing that people don't necessarily, uh, you know, appreciate about Portugal is that pretty much the entire coastline from Lisbon to Porto is a vein of calcareous clay, so right. oils that are very similar to Burgundy, mm -hmm. uh, very similar to Champagne or, or Sancerre. Uh, and this wine, the, the red grape of Collage Ramishko has not really been successfully brought onto the clay and limestone, but the white grape, Malvasita Collaris, is having a lot of success. Which is a different um, uh, Malvasia than people are used to, that really floral, aromatic. Yeah, um, exactly. Right. So there's the Malvasias that you have in northern Italy, which are very floral, mm. and then there's Malvasia Fina, which is mm. more common in you know a lot of southern Portugal, right. southern and central Portugal, and that is maybe you know a little bit less floral, nutty, mm. but still quite phenolic. Malvasita Collaris is not related to them at all. Right. Um, it's very sort of waxy, uh, almost like chenin on the nose. Yeah. Color looks like Chenin Blanc as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Um, but despite this wine, you know, being on the limestone instead of the, the sand, it still has so many of the sort of classic Collage notes. Collage to me always has this sort of uh, seaweed kind of kombu thing going on. Oh, totally. It's waxy. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of sort of sea spray, very organic ocean notes. Uh, I mean, it's one of the most immediately aggressively coastal wine regions in the world uh, and you could not mistake this wine for anything but a, a coastal wine. But gorgeous. What vintage is this? So this is the 2016. Wow. Um, yeah. the, are we convinced uh, Daniel, the, the winemaker I used to you know, give up a little bit of his very, very small library to us uh, just because we wanted to, to show people what this grape is like when it's really you know, had some time to evolve just a little bit and uh, you know, become more of itself. Um, and so unfortunately we're going to have to jump forward a couple vintage I think for our next shipment, yeah. but you know it's 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 incredible. You have so much of that sort of seashell again, sort of seaweed. It smells like the coastline. Yeah, it's got like this uni kind of thing to it. Yeah. That's really crazy. But then with the salt and the seaweed, there's also this kind of honeyed note. Yeah, uh, which I think is the kind of shen and waxy comparison. But wow, yeah. it's absolutely the aromatics are fantastic on the palate. Salt, high acid, but still weight in Venice, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, you know, we're we're talking about a very sort of relatively cool microclimate. Mm -hmm. Western Portugal, the coast of Portugal, is one of the latest harving, harvesting wine regions left in Europe. Right. Uh, it's very common for harvests here to still start in you know early mid-September and not finish until the end of October. Uh, this wine was harvested mid to late October. Yeah. Uh, and it's twelve percent alcohol. Yeah, it's, it's low alcohol. It fits fits the the time. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not that low alcohol wines are necessarily better, but it's uh, you know it's amazing to be able to experience wines that have these you know more late harvest flavors you know very very developed aromatically uh, but are still super leaf and super salty and super mineral uh, there's nowhere else in the world that can make wine like this yeah, yeah no absolutely it is unique um, and also this DO is getting smaller and smaller because of urban sprawl much like Marcinet and Burgundy their houses are being built <laughs> malls yeah. are being built and uh, these vineyards are being ripped up and that's crazy so yeah yeah I, the, is it is it an ESCO site? 
So I'm, I, I can't remember off the top of my head if it's UNESCO. Yeah. Um, it is. So th- this is one of the really exciting stories in Portuguese wine right now, which even for my, you know, pretty short career in the wine industry, mm-hmm. the vast majority of the time was sort of a, a, a tragic story of Colares. You know, these wines that we're selling are mm-hmm. the last gasp of a dying region. Right. Uh, but that is starting to change, actually. Even just within the last couple of years, there are some people starting to plant new vineyards. You know, Daniel is uh, obviously working on the clay and limestone, but another producer brought in by, you know, uh, my good friend Nama at NLC, uh, Casal do Ramilo planted, mm-hmm. you know, two and a half hectares or something wow. of proper Dio vines, uh, and, you know, instantly grew the Dio total area by like 10% or something like that. But there are uh, some other producers that are starting to expand plantings, and uh, the government of Portugal is apparently starting to, you know, make a good effort to protect the sort of agricultural uh, economy of the the region because it's so important historically. Sure. Uh, because it's, you know, it's beautiful beachfront property right near Lisbon, right? Everybody wants a piece of it. Uh, and so, you know, just within the last, you know, year, two years, with the the story of Colash is starting to change and that's it's very good. exciting. Let's, let's hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah, the wines are so some, some uh, amazing. Tell us how you get into uh, importing these wines because obviously one or two of these wines uh, spoke to you the Lipato wines I think you said yeah but like where so then you're like okay I'm just gonna start going over there and finding wine and bring it in yeah what is that where does that start particularly I mean it's it's hard as shit to start a small import company yeah during COVID it's been a challenge which we're not gonna talk about fuck that no. I'm, I'm uh, gonna talk about we're that not thing. gonna talk about it right. I mean other than to but, say that you know we started thinking about this company you know, really getting it off the ground at sort of the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I got my hand on my first bottle of samples, uh, or, you know, my first case of samples the week after Thanksgiving of 2021. So it took about a year. Wow. Um, okay. It was it was definitely a challenge. So you had you had particularly wineries lined up, though, or you were just tasting, tasting, going, I'm going to find the best. I mean, you're trying to find the best wines to bring into New York, and you're only in New York right now. So Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, like I said, my, my job at Ledoux was very much to just read as much as possible and find as much great wine as possible and, you know, taste where I can. And, uh, you know, I, I was just reading about so many of these amazing producers that had such a stellar reputation in Portugal and the UK market, you know, mm-hmm. has a much better developed Portuguese wine market, uh, Portuguese wine sort of consumer market. And I was reading a lot of British journalism, Decanter, Jansis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, why can't I find any of these wines? It's ridiculous. Right. You know, I'm in New York. It's supposed to be the best wine city in the world. And, uh, you know, I find that maybe these producers had an importer five or six years ago and they're not they like sort of ostensibly still do but they're not actively buying their wines i haven't for several years and so i'd like truck huts in new jersey and go to you know wine stores in the middle of nowhere and find some bottle that had been on their shelf for a couple years or uh you know before i started the company i was actively trying to connect a lot of these producers with other importers uh and you know i had a lot of enthusiasm for the wines but you know it's a it's a big undertaking to take on new producers you know yeah. but to what you're doing certainly as our eyes as we change our focus because the price of burgundy barolo and all those aforementioned wines yeah. uh, get out of uh, astronomically i mean and the allocations go down we still want to drink great wine so yeah. i that's why i think it's a great moment uh, to put the light on on portugal because of let's go back to the geography yeah uh, the coast and then inland and uh let's try your next producer but talk about the difference in soil I mean, you got schist, you've got granite, you have mountains yeah. like, you know, like 
you know, like Pritchard Hill in California, we're using that as a reference. We have crazy elevation. Yeah. Uh, and like amazing soils. Um, yeah. So I mean, what I would say is that Portugal. It seems complicated, but it's 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 there's ways of understanding it that are pretty simple. Uh, and it, you know, like you referenced, uh, if you understand California wine geography, you you kind of already understand Portuguese wine geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically, of course, the coast is this amazing sort of chalky clay limestone vein, uh, and if you go north. If you go east of Lisbon, basically, and straight north, you get these very granitic mountains. Right. And where you have sort of more decomposed and metamorphic veins, you start to see schist and quartz and things like that, where, you know, this is what the Douro River Valley is. Uh, and as long as you're at a decent elevation in Portugal, chances are you're, in, you're on granite soils. Mm-hmm. Uh, as when you start to get lower, like in the Douro, you know, lower to the river and some p- spots in Alentejo, things can get a little bit more complicated. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're talking about granitic mountains and, uh, you know, when you are in the more northerly areas, chances are the wines are going to be still very mineral, but a bit more structured, a bit more broad-shouldered, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more sort of intense. And then when you're in the south of Portugal, you know, sort of east of Lisbon and down, it's a bit flatter. The wines are very solar. Think wines, say, coming from like the Roussillon or even Australia and... Right. Uh, and warmer parts of California. Uh, mm. And stylistically, everything sort of matches up. Mm. Um, so what are we drinking here? This is the... Yeah, so this is another brand new producer to the U.S. market that we're very excited about, Ugo Mendes, uh, coming from Alenquer. Okay. So we're still in Lisboa here, but we're on sort of the border between Lisboa and Tejo. So we're right along the Tejo River. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, we're still only about 30 kilometers from the ocean. It's still calcareous clay soils, uh, but it's a bit more of a Mediterranean, slightly warmer climate. It's not as aggressively coastal as uh, as Colarche is. Uh, mm-hmm. And Ugo takes full advantage of that. You know, his wines are much more fruit-driven. They're super juicy and joyous. Mm-hmm. Like, they're absolutely gorgeous, but you still have this coastal Portuguese edge where they're super salty. They're relatively low alcohol. Uh, it's kind of like some blueberry bloody kind of component to it. Yeah, That's like yeah. Really beautiful on the nose. Like, yeah. wow. And Castelau is a grape that we're very excited about. Um, Pronounce that grape again? Castelau. Okay. That's yeah. the, I mean, there's like 250 grapes in, in Portugal. Much like yeah. Italy, you don't really, you don't really, don't don't get obsessive about the grapes. More yeah. just get obsessed about the wine yeah. making and the flavors. The, the coast is honestly a place, though, where you can sort of understand the grapes as a way of understanding the wines a little bit better because you're much more likely to find monovarietal wines. Mm-hmm. You know, most people who know Portuguese wine, again, they know Douro and Dao, where you have these big, crazy field blends. At least traditionally, the wines are field sure. blends. Uh, but along the coast, it's actually this long history of making monovarietal wines. Mm-hmm. Um, and Castelau is one of those grapes. And it's it's a grape that for you know most of the 20th century was quite maligned. Um, it actually has a pretty similar both flavor profile and story to Gamay. You know, you have most of the 20th century, people were making wines that, you know, oh, this is light and fruity and uh, it's not a serious wine, so let's not try and make serious wine with it. And you get into this, you know, terrible, vicious... It has almost like cycle. a Syrah kind of feel to me. Um, yeah. It's like a, a deeper olive, black olive kind of note to it as it sits in the glass and opens up. Yeah, definitely. And in the same way that Gamay can get almost like a little bit rony at, yeah, you know, sure. at higher levels of extraction. You know, Baish and Ciaras makes a Gamay as well that you would look in the glass and there are two entirely different wines. It's pretty transparent. It's red. But, you know, if you taste Jan Bertrand, it looks in t- it tastes entirely different than Migodard. Uh, you know, two producers from the Beaujolais. Right. Uh, and and Cachalot is the exact same way. You know, if you, you can make super pretty, almost like Pinot Noir-like wines with it, 
you can make wines that are you know practically like Carignan, yeah. uh, like big and inky and rich. Uh, but it's always typically you know not too tannic, relatively smooth, relatively light tannins, and there's a beautiful core of fruit. Uh, and Ugo's wines are, are generally all about preserving that you know that core of fruit while still being you know juicy and refreshing, you know, and that is sort of seen as a, a very contemporary style of mm-hmm. winemaking. But he's making very classic wines in a lot of ways. You know, the Lisbon region is is a place where you did see you know a lot of Merlot planted, a lot of Syrah planted, uh, and Ugo's pretty committed to to using indigenous varieties uh, yeah. in his wines, and we're we're super excited about his wines. So, what is the uh, the five year plan? I mean, are you going to Portugal soon, and you'll spend time over there just kind of hunting and talking to everybody because that's the way it works. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. No, I mean, uh, so we ideally we would have been three or four times by now, but right. obviously, you know, the the thing we shall not talk about is is going yeah. on. And we right. had to cancel our trip in January, mm-hmm. uh, and so we'll hopefully be going in March. You know, we kind of have to do everything a bit last minute now, simply because it's too hard to project into the future about planning these types of things. And your partner is madly in love with Port- Portuguese wines, well, and will be with you, or are yeah, you going yeah, solo? He's, he's coming this time. I went solo okay. last time. Right. Uh, you know, he's a he's a he has a day job, so he he and a, and a family, so he can't uh, take off quite as easily as I can. Yeah, I spent a couple of weeks in Portugal, and I was blown away. And my wife got so tired of me saying we to have wine and dinner. You guess how much this costs? She's like, stop. Yeah. I mean, because the, the wines are just unbelievable. I mean, for me, um, you know, everyone knows Albarino. Yeah. Uh, but up in Vino Verde, like Albarino is electric and salty. Yeah. And amazing wines at the at incredible value. Yeah. Um, which I'm like, a monster is one of, my, one of my favorite wines. So the yeah. Clarish is Yeah, awesome. no, I mean, Albarino is yeah. amazing. You know, there's, uh, you know, Albarino is mostly coming from a slightly continental, uh, mm-hmm. at least varietal Alvarino wines uh, yeah. in in the Vino Verde region are coming from sort of like the middle of Vino Verde and then right on the Spanish coast where right. there's a slightly higher elevation and because you know the big challenge traditionally with, with these wines is a region that's called you know the green wine region sure. was getting ripeness and you could do it in uh, uh, the Montsau area but you know increasingly there's a lot of producers in Vino Verde that are you know ripeness isn't a problem anymore for better no more. or worse yeah. uh, and so they're starting to you know re-examine some of the other grapes that are uh, from the region you know Albarino from Spain is m- now, you know, most famously grown like right on the coast, you know, sure. right in Salnas. Salnas Valley, yeah. Yeah, it's, and, and yeah. you're starting to see some Portuguese winemakers being like, oh, well, if they can do it, you know. Yeah, it makes total sense. I well, they're close to the Mino, so they can yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. have very similar uh, climatic uh, issues or, or not issues, but positive things. Yeah. Um, so let's do the third wine and talk about uh, uh, your, your mission, your next. Uh, so how many producers do you have currently in the book? And so there are, we're three in our first partial container, in our first shipment. Right. Um, we have another one coming in March, a fifth one coming in uh, hopefully April, uh, and you know, ideally we probably are, are doubling the size of the book, at least in terms of number of producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, by the end of this year. Um, Good. You know, we there's so many, so many exciting winemakers in Portugal, both that are new and up and coming, but also some that have these incredible established legacies that just for whatever reason have not had the right champion in New York, uh, and we're we're hoping to be that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, because it's uh, like to earlier we were saying, like France. Spain, I mean, all of Europe. The wines are here and known, and yeah. uh, and I think I think certainly think uh, uh, Portugal not being part of the EU uh, set them back. Um, 
a bit and took a while to catch up. Uh, but from everything I tasted when I was there, uh, and from what we have in the, in the book, I'm like, wow, this is a really exciting region. And the price point, I mean, you're drinking like world class wines. At, at such a, an amazing uh, bargain price. Yeah, so. both in terms of producer and and lesser known regions. You know, Portugal. The best way I can describe it is the state of you know Portuguese wine imported being into the U.S. Imagine if France only exported Bordeaux, Sancerre, and Southern Rhone wines. Right. You know, there's so much more to the country, uh, and there's so much that I feel I have the opportunity to introduce to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, New York is one of the hardest places to you know start an importing company it's super competitive but at the same time you know i know there's so much hunger for great wine in the city and yeah. there's so so much of it in portugal not just of producers that are undiscovered but entire styles of wine that yeah. even really high level wine professionals who are some of the best in the world aren't that familiar with yeah. maybe only know theoretically and have never tasted you know really great wines from these places i think uh, myself that these wines will definitely like take take some of the spotlight and i also think georgian wines yeah. are coming down the pike and um the lesser known uh because they're world-class wines yeah um but uh, so certainly applaud your effort i mean it's like courageous and fucking hard work you had the bag on your shoulder all day i did it for 15 years selling wine slogging through this rainy shitty gray day showing the wines that we're tasting today to a number of customers yeah um and you're do you're go you're battling uphill right i mean yeah i so mean what's the, what's the biggest problem that you face the, daily the biggest problem that i yeah. face daily um you know, I, I knew a decent amount of people in the wine industry, but the vast majority of people have no idea who I am. And right. so, you know, getting the appointment is definitely the hard part. And then obviously there's all of the shipping logistics issues. Uh, and so making sure I have enough supply right now is actually, you know, a big problem. Problem for everybody. But I yeah. mean, when on a customer to customer base, I, tell me if I'm, I, yeah. um, but you, you can fill in the blanks here. I would imagine uh, telling someone this is the price and they're going, I'm gonna have a hard time passing that on, right? Like, I, I mean, I would hope it, but I think that's yeah. the the biggest problem because I've brought in crazy wines before that people are like, I, what is this? Yeah. And my job is to explain why this is a, an incredible wine, yeah. And that's not expensive because look at what you're pouring by the glass. Yeah. Um, isn't that your biggest battle? Probably one of the big. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I think I've had that conversation a couple times, yeah. but overwhelmingly. I start out the conversation by explaining why these wines are an incredible value right. and it doesn't take people much convincing when they taste them. Right. You know, getting the appointment has been the hard part. Selling the wine once I have the appointment so far has, has not been the, the tricky issue. Um, and you know, this is especially true of the Luis Pato wines that mm-hmm. we're, we're tasting right now. Right. I, I have no more Luis Pato to sell. Um, it's a great problem to have. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I sold out yesterday. Um, and so it was actually tricky because I was going to these appointments today and I was like, these wines are amazing and I canceled them to you and I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, I have some coming next month. You can, you can pre-order some. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Baga from Bayrata, as much as I love these other wines and I think there's amazing wine made all over Portugal, um, Lu- Baga from Bayrata does the thing that Pinot Noir from Burgundy does and does the thing that Nebbiolo from Barolo does and that it makes these incredible, delicious, long-lived classic wines that are 
very, very good at translating sort of micro terroir, very small nuances in different vineyards, uh, different vintages. You know, so I, what makes it such a special place? So. I think part of it is its simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have the vast majority of the region is this, again, this super chalky clay soils, mm -hmm. uh, emerald fossils, uh, and it's sort of soft, rolling, gentle hills. Uh, you have a bit of sand in the west and a bit of sort of more red clay in the east. Um, but really, it's a, it's a place that, and you know, this cold ocean air and fog mm -hmm. rolling off the ocean. Um, and it, it's a place that allows the, the single grape baga to really express where it's from. It's um, gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're tasting the Vina Pond 2013 coming from the Panasquera Vineyard, which mm. is sort of in the heart of Bairada, relatively close to Oisto Barrio, which is sort of the, the village uh, most well associated with the super chalky soil. Mm -hmm. um, it's a relatively steeply sloped vineyard for Bairada. We're not talking about like the Mosul or Barasaka here. We're talking right. about like, you know, a gentle burgundy slope. Uh, and it's their most red fruited wine. Um, it's super, super elegant. It's super pretty. Uh, you know, really one of the amazing experiences of tasting these wines. You know, I wish I had the opportunity to do this is tasting all the single vineyards next to each other. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, yeah. And, you know, realizing how delicious they all are, but how just drastically different they all are as well. And the other amazing thing about Bairata is that there's so many great producers who are all making delicious wine. Again, that's all so different. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many different expressions that are all just so beautiful. Uh, this guy seems like he's a very old school producer, though. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Luis Pato was the first producer, I won't say the first, but it, in sort of the modern era of Bairata, mm -hmm. since it mm -hmm. became a DOC, mm -hmm. to really sort of say, we're going to make 100% Baga wines. You know, we'll work to soften the tannins a little bit because Baga for a long time had the same reputation that maybe Barolo did in sort of the early 20th century, where right. it was this sort of strangler of a grape that, you know, takes 10 years takes 10 to soften years down. To soften. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, Luis Pato was very, very important in terms of uh, introducing green harvesting to the region. It's actually a very, not, it's a, it's pretty unique, their method of green harvesting, and mm. that they actually do it twice. Oh, they uh, do a second pass. Yeah, the yeah. first time after fruit set. Right. Right is sort of the traditional time to do it. And then they also do another harvest sort of in mid-August uh, and to make sparkling wines. Uh, Baga is also an oh, yeah, incredible right. sparkling wine grape. Uh, like imagine if uh, in Barolo, uh, you know, if they made Busia sparkling and then a month, <laughs> a month later they... Uh, Right. They harvested for the Barolo wines yeah. uh, and out of Nebbiolo. Like it's the same. It's the same grape that's making these. This wine has the the, the tannic structure, the very front to back kind of um, uh, Nebbiolo kind of uh, mouthfeel. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's more denser kind of fruit going on. So this is not a particularly meaty wine. Like mm. he has other wines that are, are much uh, like almost like a beef jus, like cured meats, uh, yeah. very olivey sometimes. Uh, and then the other thing that these wines have that is totally unique is again this sort of expression of the the coast of Portugal. They're they're salty. Right. They are. Um, and yeah, it tastes like like sopressata to me. <laughs> like yeah. That salty kind of cured meat. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, Good work finding yeah. and bringing in these great producers. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 a mission that I feel very passionate about, um, and you know I have a very strong belief in the wines. Uh, and right now they're you know they have my back. They're delivering. They're Good. all they're all tasting great. <laughs> there you go. Well, Lewis, we're at that part of the show where I always say, 
you know, uh, you know, God said, "Hey, Louis, I believe, I believe you. Portugal is like heaven, yeah. but it's only like heaven. Yeah. We're going to bring you upstairs, but we're going to give you a last meal. Yeah. We're going to give you a last drink, and we're going to give you a last piece of music to listen to as you float uh, upward. So, what are you eating? What are you drinking? What are you listening to?" Um, I mean, I have to, you know, I think enjoying a bottle of Baga, I think it would be Luis Pata. He has a, an own rooted uh, vineyard uh, in the far west of Bairada. It's actually sort of the, the sort of ancestral home of the, the Pato family. It's where oh, cool. it was his father's estate, Quinto de Robinho, where he makes the, the Pifranco bottling. And it's, uh, you know, I when I first tasted it, it was a magnum, I think, of 1987. Um, and it was, uh, maybe it was 1997. One of those. Yeah. It's, it's still to this day one of the best wines I've ever had in my life. And what are you eating with this fantastic wine? Um, and I'm going to give you the magnum so you can take your time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just a really simple piece of fish. Uh, okay. Probably, you know, I I grew up spending a lot of time uh, in the outdoors and camping and mm-hmm. uh, the Great Lakes region, uh, you know, in the Boundary Waters, uh, which is, you know, one of the best freshwater fishing zones in the world. Oh, cool. um, and... Yeah, I think I would be drinking that. I'd be, I'd be in the Boundary Waters. I'd be, you know, okay. eating a, a freshly caught, you know, rainbow trout. And uh, what are you listening to? Um, you know, the Boundary Waters is home to uh, a very big loon population. Um, okay. And if you've never heard a loon before, they they howl like a wolf. Oh wow! Um, okay, yeah. And it's you know. I haven't been back in a while. You know, it's probably been five, six, seven years since I've since I've been there. But you know, it's still that's you know, totally cool. I, I've never had somebody I, give me a sound, yeah. as opposed to a piece of I music. Mean, I, I, I love not, I love music, but uh, you know, there's not gonna go with the loon. There's such a, an ingrained you know yeah. happy, happy sound in my in my mind being there. It's so peaceful and so beautiful. And well, Louis, yeah. my uh, my hat off to you because it's um, it's a lot of hard work uh, establishing an import company and yeah. being a one-man show and having that bag on your shoulder I did it for 15 years and going out and, and uh, proselytizing and yeah. spreading the gospel of uh, Portugal and these great Portuguese wines I wish you nothing but good luck so how do people find you and because your videos are awesome uh, give us that info and then uh, yeah so you, you should no. you should follow us on Instagram at GK selections uh, you know my uh, my business partner feels very strongly about you know putting out as much video content as possible and I, I try and I, I try and do it, uh-huh. uh, and or you can email me uh, Lewis at gkselections.com. It's L E W I S at gkselections.com, and I will come and meet you wherever you are and pour you some <laughs> great baga. There you go. You heard it. So so email them. Say hey, meet me here, uh, Lewis. Thank you for being on DOTJ podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been wonderful. Cool. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar.